Brian Elsesser, and you're listening to Sassholes by the largest sasshole from the guy from Saster, which has a lot of sass ultimately in it. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to Sassholes. We are revenue apps with an edge. Decades of making interesting decisions. Jamie, Jason, and Pete are dedicated to helping aspiring sales leaders accelerate revenues with our no BS approach to sales leadership strategies and tactics. Our show is supported by listeners and viewers just like you. We'd like to thank Demand Farm Winalytics, Trent S. and Aaron J. for their continued support. Demandfarm.com, unlock key account growth, smart software to bring account planning and relationship intelligence into your CRM, making key account management practice data-driven, predictable, and scalable. Go to Demandfarm.com, ask for Ironman. Hey, check out Brett Keltner's Revenue Acceleration Playbook Masterclass at Winalytics.com. In eight weeks, help your sales and go-to-market team start to build the mindset and skills needed to succeed in a new buyer environment. Sign your team up for the Masterclass today at Winalytics.com. If you'd like to help us out to improve the quality of our content, go to Patreon.com slash Sassholes. It's time for shout-outs. Hey, Marcus Kauke, two years at Pavilion. Jen Villa, two years at Yext. Sean Stegink, seven years at ZS Associates. Tara McMillan, just got a new gig as Chief Revenue Officer at Open Corporates. Francisco Ashank, shared starting a new position as sales rep at Veritiv Corporation. Delia Seltawan. 12 years at EY. Jillian Young, Forzertalent.com. Marika Smith, one year at Six Clicks. James Moorhead, 10 years at Moorhead Law Group. Rick Carner, one year at Vertiki Law Firm. What's going on, Rick? Ken News, one year at YPro. Steve Whittington, one year at Convene. Jerrica Vaughn just got promoted to Senior HR Manager at Eversana In Touch. Oscar Ibarra being promoted to Director Latin America at Intercom. Way to go, Oscar. Mitchie Wall got a new gig as sales leader at Plan Hat. Arthur Anderson V, five years at Anderson. Bryce Horath got a new gig as Business Development Director, Large Enterprise at Gartner. Mike Mears, promoted to Executive Director at Vericast. Kyle Deemer, what's up, buddy? Six years at ADP. And we got some happy birthdays. Nicole Tarisio, happy birthday. Marcin Gamsa, happy birthday. Pat Barron and Jordan Schlitt, happy birthday. Brian Elsaster, VP of Sales over at Saster. Thanks for coming on the show. You guys got a good gig over there. You built up a blog into an industry industry leading event. You're the head of sales over there. Thanks for coming on, man. Hey, Pete, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, if you're unfamiliar with Saster, Saster is the largest community in the world for B2B tech executives. We're founded by uh, a prolific content guru, uh, Jason Lemkin, who has been writing for the founder uh, for the last 10 years. Uh, Jason was the, formerly the founder of EchoSign, uh, which was acquired by Adobe, became Adobe Sign. Uh, but he, he's been writing uh, content ever since to help founders grow their business to $100 million in ARR um, and build unicorns and, and beyond. And, and we've had the privilege of helping thousands and thousands and thousands of businesses, which has been super exciting. So, yeah, our, our largest event, Saster Annuals, our flagship event, it happens uh, right now 
uh, every September. We literally just closed it two weeks ago, which was super fun. Because you guys have grown pretty damn fast. I mean, to grow from a blog into this, that's pretty impress- impressive. It's hard to uh, keep a blog going, keeping you know creators and writers uh, together. When did you go from the uh, February gig to the September? And how many gigs do you do a year to bring everybody together? To me, it looks like it's speed dating for uh, founders and, you know. VCs they, and everyone else. Yeah, it, it is. It, it is. And a lot of that. I, 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 um. So I, I wasn't here in the early days, but I was a, I was a customer, in, uh, you know, several years ago as well. And so I was introduced to Saster when I was at Aircall. Um, but uh, but so we were in February for some time. We were in, you know, right February, March area in, in 2020. We were actually affected by the covid pandemic where three days out from the event, um, the state of California shut down. And all of a sudden, we weren't able to put on that event, even though we had already loaded in, if you could imagine. So everything's built and wasn't happening, right? Um, and so part of the transition uh, of how do does the event business even exist, uh, you know, after something of that nature, um, we were trying to transition safely, and we did so by going to an outdoor venue. And so in 2021, we went to the San Mateo Event Center, which is this beautiful 40-acre campus um, that hosts the San Mateo like state fair and has, has everything going on at it. And it's just, if you've never been, it's, it's really, it's really just an absolutely gorgeous campus. And, uh, and we take it over and we build this tent city, if you will. It's like think festival um, like Coachella, uh, but yeah, then yeah. sprinkle in a whole bunch of SAS nerds and mix it around uh, and you get Saster and it's super exciting. We have art cars and music and, this year, stilts, people on stilts and carnival games. and But then we also have incredible content, the best minds in SaaS, um, absolutely amazing sponsors. And and we all come together to put on this event. And, and it's been, it was super successful. We were the very first event after um, COVID. Uh, we were the very first event to come back to person and it was really successful. And this year we just closed out again. We had 10,900 tickets sold um to an event in the same spot uh it was absolutely crazy um i'm still riding the high from it which is probably why i can't even put it into words properly yet right but i it it was uh it it, and then you know we close that out and social media explodes and you really then get to see the impact of the event right it's not we are not an event business we're a company that does content and we you know as we said we we champion the founder and the executive team we want people to be successful in building their businesses but then when you do an event and you see the social impact, people talking about how it's changed their career or their business or their company or the learnings, and they share it and you get to actually realize an impact. No one was forced to post these things, right? That's what's really cool about it. Right. God, it's got to be critical to have a good event staff or at least a good third party to make sure all that stuff, because I mean, you're hurting a lot of cats there, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting point because your what your original question was was you know um, how often are you doing these events and Saster Annual is our biggest one, but it's not our only one. We also do another one, another in person in Europe every every year. Saster Europa was this past June. We're going to do it again in June, uh, and then you know we also have stood up several um, not only digital events but also uh, we'll do an occasional meetup. We did one in in Miami last year, and 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 what's you'd be amazed all these different motions and people uh that rather all these different motions and events are only done are only handled by 10 people uh so yeah, we have 10 yeah. core people in the business that stand up saster 
And then, you know, but then when event time comes, yeah, we, we have to bring on quite a few different partners to help us execute. Uh, and depending on the region or where we are, um, you know, it, it can change who we're working with. Uh, but it's, it's pretty incredible. How many of the how many of these events do you you guys want to do in a year? Because I mean, if you're the sales guy, the more the the better, or maybe the less, because then your oh, quotas go up. <laughs> you know, I mean, honestly, um, so my sales team is six people, uh, and you know, within that six people, we'll go over twenty million in revenue a year, right? And like, like, so that that means that I have very six very driven individuals, and I think that's that's really the key to that. I don't necessarily think more of more events equals more revenue. Um, yeah. Contrarily, I think it's 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 a business where you want to focus in where you're good and where you find success. Um, we are definitely open to experimenting. We're definitely open to trying new things. But when we find something that is excelling and growing, you know, you also want to take your hooks, dig in, and hold on. Yeah. You know? yeah. So. Um, you know, this is, this is a, a very different type of rocket ship. There's no, there's no recurring revenue, right? So every year yeah. we go and talk to the business again and, uh, it's advertising and it, in a way, right? Like I've done ad sales back in my early career and I, yeah. I equated to that because it feels very much like a regiment by which you're constantly working and reprogramming and building campaigns for with, with individuals. And I, I personally think it's super exciting work. You know, it reminds me, you know, my background's in recruiting and in the early days, let's see, with Yahoo careers, career fairs were a big thing. You know, you had the job boards and then I needed something physical where everybody could come together. You're in sales and you're bringing these people together and they're going to judge your event based on the leads that they got out of it. And if they don't have a good lead system or a way to, you know, harness that, uh, they'll say, I, ah, you know, it didn't work. How do you make sure that doesn't happen at your events, Brian? Yeah, I, you know what? Honestly, there, there's we're fortunate to be an event that has several components. Leads definitely one of them. Lead counts, yeah. but you know, but but I would say that there's several other reasons why um, you know people spend money at Saster too. Being it their executive is going to partake in some form of content on site or, or, or listen to content on site, or they want to come in really one of the most famous ones, they want to come and claim their part of the cloud, right? They have their flag. They're going to plant it in the, in the, the category moon and say, this is mine. Right. And, and, and overtake it or right. their partner, their, their com competitors are there. And if they're not there, they don't exist. And actually I'll take a step there and, and say it was very interesting because my very first year at Aircall, I was introduced to Saster. I had just built a, my very first of the SDR teams, uh, which was 25 strong. I had stood it up in about six months. And uh, and the the we were underway and rolling. And it was mid-month. And my VP of sales comes up to me and says, hey, um, we're, we're sending your team uh, to, to Saster. They need to go and work the booth. And I'm like, you know, Colin, I'm, I'm, I'm mid mid month year, like we're, we're tracking towards quota. You're going to send people away and I'm not going to hit like, why, why are you sending people away? Uh, I don't understand. And he goes, well, to not be at Saster is to not exist. And that was something that stood with me. And I mind you, I, this is me first being introduced to it. Right. And then now flash fast forward being on it and, and working for that company. Um, it kind of comes full circle because I'm, I'm watching all of these similar companies make similar choices for similar reasons. And it's very interesting, but there is an element of, you know, being close to Saster, 
being able to be partake in an environment where it's a non-vendor event and it's the largest gathering of SaaS executives and decision makers, like it's not an end user conference. Mm -hmm. And so you're having the people that you've been spending all your marketing dollars to try to get in front of, you have them all in one place. That's what's powerful. And so I think like, at the end of the day, you can value things around brand exposure. You can value things around learnings. You can value around leads. You can value around quality of lead, more importantly. And it becomes less about getting as many scans and more about how can I create meaningful interactions in a way in which I walk away with value. And I think that's super exciting about Zaster. Now, you, you've done a lot of work, a, a lot of writing on uh, BDRs, SDRs. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, can it really be a sales path? You know, back at your other company, you said you had 25, you got six sales reps now. Now we're starting to go into a slower part of the, you know, economy business cycle. Sure. Do you think companies have put on too many SDRs, sales development reps, business development reps, you know, to, to do the initial uh, phone calls or do you, or do you think the companies are staying the same? Like, how have you seen it evolve? Like I've been out of the biz for probably, you know, five years. I just talk to people on the phone, you know, you know, us revenue people, we're, you know, sales wannabes. Uh, but how, how is that initial, who's making that initial phone call for you guys? By the time I left their call, we had, um we had a team of, of, of nearly 50 strong. And, uh, and when I came to, to Saster, um, you know, I, I started with just a, a single SDR, to be honest. Um, I, do I think it's a career path that, that lasts forever? I I'm actually in the camp. So there's a lot of, I'm going to go a lot of different ways with this uh, Pete. So just keep me on track. There's a lot of different thoughts around how AI or, um, SAS or something's going to come in and take over the human element or need for an SDR. I sit solidly in the camp that that will never happen. Sales is so absolutely a human to human interaction that I don't really feel, especially in a way in which buyers are buying software today, I don't feel that there is an element of um, of mechanical disruption that takes a, the salesperson out of the equation. And sales dev people are the first salesperson. So I'll, I'll start there. Um, I truly think that companies, what maybe we could all do more of, and the longer I spend in this field and uh, I, I see what we could all do more of is hold our SDRs to better KPIs um, to track them closer to revenue than maybe we are used to. Um, the reality is that we always know that well, we've known maybe for 10 years now that once the, on the dawn of dot coms, people started doing more research online and more research prior to a purchase before ever even engaging with us. Yeah. Right. And that's only increased. Um, I, you maybe heard heard me say it a second ago, but I don't see it as sales. I, I I see it as a buyer. Someone's buying. By the time they're engaging with you, it's purchasing decisions. It's do I buy it? Do I not buy it? Why would I buy it? And they pick the, they pick three companies they want to work with, and who can dance the best? Yeah, I mean it, it, it that, and also like like you know. Is this going to solve what I have a, a true need for? I think one of the things that we're, we're we we lose sight of is that there are true reasons behind why people buy things. Like anything you I've ever purchased, 
there's a reason behind why I'm purchasing it. And there's no difference in a founder who is going to need a new software or um, a, an e-com platform that needs a new tool or they're, everyone's buying something for a reason. And so we need to get away from the fact of I need to sell this to this business because if you are really needing to sell your product, I don't know if you have product market fit. That's that's not indicative of product market fit. So I, I, I think um, part of it is your SDR program. That's your initial stepping point of saying and of that introduction. And the more the SDRs that I work with um, and that are on my team, but also the companies that I, I advise, the SDRs I work with, the, the reinforcement that I go down the road of is stop selling. Get the hell away from your product. I don't care what your product does. I'll ask all the time, what does your product do? Oh, well, we have one of the, someone said to me the other day, we're a technology first uh, company. What in the hell does that mean? It means nothing to me as the buyer. What is technology? It means nothing. Now, if you're going to now talk to me a little bit about what you're actually solving for me, what you're actually going to remove from me, what you're actually going to help me do. Okay, fine. Now we can talk, but get out of your product and, and we need to do that. So I'm all over the place here, but to answer your question, the, the more buyers become acclimated to buying software, the more sales dev people and salespeople are necessary to help with that acquisition. It's not converse. The two schools of thoughts out there, Brian, where one school says, you know what? I don't want my 23-year-olds calling up, making first contact with my prospects you know i want my veterans to do it and then the vice versa how do you feel about that because i know you went from one one company to another and if you have less sdrs then your marketing better be spot on you better you know the, the yeah well, well the, the product is great what you're offering is great you know what, what are the, if you're walking down the street and someone asks you what you do and you can't talk about it then you really have no business being at that company Right, bar none. So you're saying we're saying that 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 argument is that a 23 year old can't speak to what it is that they do. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think that we don't give 23 year olds enough credit. Like, let's just start there, <laughs> okay? Like, they're 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 functioning humans; they're not children. And yeah. so, um, you know, if if you really have that fear, then what your fear is is not of whether or not that 23-year-old can speak about your company. It's a fear of are you able to enable that individual to do so? Yeah. So maybe the fear and time and concern needs to be spent in your onboarding program and less in whether or not this individual is old enough to be doing it. Right, uh, training. Yeah. It, you know, it's... it's um, it's uh, it's it's not necessarily the most natural thing in the world for people to you know go and and represent a company. Um, and what I mean by that is if I'm out and somebody says, "Hey, Brian, like here's this new company. I want you to go and represent it." I I'm if I'm if I'm like, okay, I'm going to read the script. I'm going to learn about the company. Ooh, there's the value props. Okay, I'm going to memorize these. And now we go out into the market and we're we're like, wow, they did an awful job. That person sounded like a robot. Yeah, you train them to be a robot. They're going to sound like a robot. It's going to be awful. The reason why people say senior is because usually with seniority comes experience and with experience comes the ability for you to weave things into a conversation naturally. And so maybe the training is less about that script and more about how do you naturally talk about what it is that you do, right? And then seniority is less important. So, you, so you're bringing up the magic word script. And 
Now, when we say 23-year-old, okay, here, here's what I remember. You had somebody that came from a very structured environment throughout their whole lives. Their days were all planned for them. And now they're coming. An SDR role, I mean, that's generally your first role at a company. After you tried to get a job and what you studied in college, you couldn't get one. So now you get into sales, right? So then you get in and then, you know, if you watch a movie, well, how do they know what to say? Well, they had a script. Well, why does it sound natural? Because they rehearse it. So in your training, if they don't have a script, what are the KPIs or the bullets or how do you ingrain the differentiators so the, you know, these uh, young adults can represent your company in a positive manner? Well, before I ever got into sales, I was an opera singer uh, and was performing quite a bit. And uh, I had to take all sorts of classes to do that. One of the classes I took was acting. I took a lot of acting classes. And, um, you know, you'd be given a play and a role uh, and a monologue and you'd have to read this this script. Right. Now, if I just read the script um, and did what was told of me, that that would be a, a fail. I get an F on that, yeah. on that play. Right. And that, and that ability. If I read the script with feeling and with projection and, and other elements of acting, I might get a B um, for for a good attempt. But if I embodied the script and made it part of who I am and went more of like what you might hear of as method acting, which is, you know, becoming the individual that is on the page, that was the way to the A, right? And so th there's no difference really in, in sales scripts is that it's the same fundamentals. You're going to learn the script. If you just read it, you get the F. And if you read it with feeling, you get a B and someone's going to know you're just a salesperson. But if you can embody the individual that is that is putting this company together, I consider that ownership. And there's no reason why each and every salesperson or person at the company, period, can't be an owner in the business. You should feel personally vested in what you're doing. Um, and if you are, then that passion will overcome everything that you're doing and, 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 and take over. Right. And that's, that's what I think, that's what I think is, is really the key crucial point, the standout moment. I've had, I've had the the pleasure of working with, with several really, really high performers over the, over the, the years. And um, what, you know, I can count the ones that were truly standout individuals, probably just on two hands. And I've probably had a couple hundred individuals, right. Um, so there's a lot of people in this that are listening to this that are mad at me, but I won't name names. So there's that. But that that said, right, um, the the true top performers, what made them stand out, what made them different is that they were so invested personally in what it was that they were doing and who they were represented that the founders themselves, I think, at times would question Am I as passionate about this company as this person is? Right. I like that is that is how you know, right? If someone's really got it. Um, they get on the phone and they just matter what happens. I've I've witnessed everything from uh people falling over to people getting sick to whatever, and they're still going. They're like, doesn't matter, I'm gonna just plow through it. And they th that is that is like. Oh man, I, I I I I've witnessed some of the coolest things on cold calls, but simply because of that. Um, and I will go one step further here, Pete, because your question yeah. was was layered. You were talking about cold calling. It in and of itself is not dead. Let's just start there. 
I think we've given up on cold calling maybe before it's given up on us. Um, has it gotten harder? Yes. Has connect rates fallen? Yes. But there are tools out there to help increase connect rates. So maybe it's more of an idea of how do we increase connect rates? What can I get in order to increase those connect rates? Right. Um, but get your people talking. And the reason why is because once you get someone, so much can be misconstrued over an email, but not so much can be misconstrued on a phone call. And you can literally hear an objection or where the beginning of hesitation lies and address it. And that is super important. It's the reason why meeting people is so valuable. Um, I even think Zoom, uh, to go on another tangent here, um, but I even think Zoom is a, nu a nuisance at times because there's only so much actual human connection I can build and bond I can build through this screen. Now, this is a heavy debate. I've Someone said to me the other day that some of the best connections they've ever had in their life came from Zoom. I wish that I think that's amazing. And and if that's the case, great. But for me, I am I am such a I, I want to know somebody. I don't want to know them for 30 minutes. I want to know somebody and I want to I want to sit down with them. I want to break bread with them. I want to learn about them. And I think that one of the things that I was taught early in my career is that if you do this idea of sales correctly, You'll say you will sell to the same people throughout your entire career, um, the same people over and over and over again, multiple products, multiple stories doesn't matter because sales is less about selling and it's more about building authentic relationships with other people and then helping those individuals at a time when they need it. And so these days I, I'll meet with a founder. I just had a, a founder ask me uh, maybe just before this call, he, he asked me a, a question about my thought, uh, my thoughts on tech stack. And I was dri driving him through different pieces to consider and what elements to consider and where he should go next. And like from my own stance and being in his shoes once before. And like, so like, but that only comes from having that relationship, right? So anyway, I, I- uh, No, no, I no, 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 you're on fire, man. You brought up opera. That's very cool. Get on that stage. All right. <laughs> yeah. That's good for new business. You know, what do, what do you think about- uh, stand up doing like second city i mean because sales and comedy you know the punchline, the timing it's all you know related i think that's great training but all the stuff that you're talking about when you have you know six reps can you train that or is recruiting gonna have to really find some people that already have this instilled in them what do you think uh, well, I think you you bring up a good point with the the number of reps, right? So I'll start by saying any type of performance on stage is very, I've always found to be extremely relevant um, to sales, right? It's, I just came back from annual. I was out there. I was in California for 12 days, okay? And came back and physically, emotionally exhausted. Why? Because for 12 days I was on, right? Like that's, that's the feeling I was on stage for 12 days. Now, mind you, right? Like that's what sales is. You're on, you're on stage. You're on a, you're, you are, whether or not you want to call it a performance, you are like, you're being, you have to be sharp for a period of time. Uh, so any sort of formal training towards that, I think is important in terms of finding people that know how to do this. I think when you're building larger teams, it, you have a little bit more uh, ability to hire broad um, and you can find more surprises, if you will, of like, oh, that person turned out to be really great, you know, um, which is which I think is is uh, you have a little bit more of like a latitude when you're with a company like Saster, where it's a small team, 
one higher, right, is 10% more, 10% bigger than what we already were. And so that's extremely important to keep in mind that that individual needs to be able to bring with them, you know, an increase of value to the business at 10% or more, right? Like right. that is, you, you can't add to a business that large and not have it be impactful. So, you know, typically the team that I have in the AE realm are, you know, people that have been in their career 10 years or more and, and that have had large amounts of success from varying degrees and a lot of different um, backgrounds and, and some the largest out there. I mean, we have we have former CROs on the team, but that's because like, you know, it's that's just the the environment or the culture of the team. The SDRs I have, um, you know, Jack on my team. Is, an, is a perfect example of this. He was my first SDR hire, um, but came in not knowing much about B2B SaaS sales, but he knew what he was good at. He knew that he could overcome challenge and he knew that he could do the work, right? And he put those two, thing, good, two things to use. Jack um, Jack was actually, and he talks about this and it's in, uh, it actually he was featured in the LA Times last year. But Jack was part of a, a, a catastrophic jujitsu accident where his teacher nearly uh, broke his neck um, fully. Jeez. But he would he had uh, incomplete uh, quadriplegia, and uh, Jack, you know, went from uh, from in that moment he had like multiple strokes that night, nearly dying, um, to teaching himself how to walk again. To then he climbed Mount Whitney with a team and summited the, the peak and like that is that kind of individual right is an extreme version uh of individual but that kind of individual that gets served a challenge a curveball in life that could for with no one would blame him otherwise right of saying okay hey man you're out i get it like you want to you want to sit here and, and 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 you know i it's life served me a really bad curveball i can't get up from it i I get it. I don't I don't know how I would handle that situation. But when you find that individual that gets that curveball, overcomes it, but then goes, hey, but what? here's what else I'm going to go do. That's a special individual of, of a very interesting mental capacity and caliber. And when they can apply that drive in, other, in one area, they're going to most likely apply it in many. And um, it's just part of their character. What advice uh, would you give? Because, I mean, you're speaking to founders and they, they don't know, they haven't experienced it. You know, they're the first salesman. They have the name behind it. It's going to be easier for them to uh, influence a sale than somebody that just came in off of the street. If you're going to hire somebody in the SDR role, Maybe that's not the first role you're going to get. Not the you first get role some, you're going to hire. Yeah, no, not, not so what would be some of the advice? Like, how would you... Because if a new founder is calling you up and say, hey, man, I don't have the time to do this anymore. Uh -huh. Help me set up my team. Let's just yep. say $5 million in sales. Yep. What, what, what's the advice you would give? Well, I mean, so uh, first off, if you're at $5 million in sales and you're the, the founder um, and you're the only seller, um, yeah. chances are you're sitting on something pretty amazing. Uh, but but yeah. that's <laughs> that that's that said, um, you know, more more than likely you're a founder who sold for the first year. Um, I, I truly, I'm a person that believes the founder should be the first salesperson. You have to be. And to a certain extent, you need to be the champion of your own product. When you bring on that second individual, that person's potentially your first VP of sales, right? You might not hire that individual as VP of sales out the gate, 
but you should almost be looking at them in that regard that this is going to be a sales director that's going to come in. They're going to champion the product. They're going to go and take over this piece, do it as good as I did, if not better, right? Usually when you bring in a true seasoned salesperson, they're able to take what the founder started and then expand it 20%, right? They're going to go and do that. But then on top of it, they're going to start layering in members of the team. They're going to hire another salesperson. They're going to hire another salesperson. They're going to hire a CX person. Then they might hire an SDR, right? But they're, they're going to start bringing in different layers underneath them to build out and scale. And then they're on top of it, going to make sure the right tools are in place. This is, they're going to make sure the right processes are in place. These are the things that are really important. And I think what happens is um, if you're a founder and you're thinking about this stage, you don't abandon the sale to just hire somebody and hand it off and say, okay, I don't have to worry about this anymore. Do it where you're hiring someone that you feel can do it better than you showcase that they can do it better than you. And then slowly but surely you can hand off that piece once you, you feel like it's uh, the timing's right. Um, you know, if, but, but the second piece to that is to go back to the original point. If you're going to be a founder, um, you have to sell your product you have to be good at it, right? Like you have to be the first salesperson and you have to, if you're going to hire somebody, that's going to be the largest sale you're going to make. You have to bring them on board and get them to believe in it. Um, that's do you a, see these, do you see these founders saying, Oh man, I need a CRO. I need a chief revenue officer. Uh, yeah. In the last five years, have you seen that popping up? Uh, yeah. I think that, um, what I boiled it down to is that I, I think it's less that they're, they're saying I need a chief revenue officer and they're saying more of, I need someone to help me scale and do it right. You know, and I think that's, they, they might call it a CRO or a VP of sales. Um, yeah. In brain. But uh, more and more, I don't think title matters anymore, right? Like you, you you could just call me sales guy for all I care. At the end of the day, the the job needs to be, I need someone to help me scale. I need to have someone that's done this before that knows what to do, what the next step is, that can represent my business, that can sell the product. And, you, you know, additionally, I think founders more than anything are very attuned, at least the ones that have done it before, are attuned to the fact that you need different people at different times. Um, you know, the early days, you need uh, a leader that is very hands-on and the later days, you need someone that can be very large scale, structurally oriented. And those are very different skills, right? Um, I reached out the other day, um, a couple months ago, actually from, to the founder at Aircall, uh, uh, Olivier. And I, I, the person that I really, really think very highly of. Um, but he had, there was an announcement online that he had stepped down as CEO. And I was like, oh man, like you stepped, they, they just crossed a hundred million dollars in revenue and he steps down. Like, whoa, right? And I reached yeah. out to him, I was like, hey, Ali, man, how are you doing? Just, you know, wanted to see how things are going so that you step down and I hope everything's well, you know? And just was like, I very like wanted to engage with him to see how he was. And he wrote me back and was like, I'm excited if you had if you if you had met the new CEO, you'd know why I stepped down. And that's the thing is like identifying where your skills are. And this is an individual that is, that is not only brilliant but smart enough to know that the scaling from zero to hundred million is different from scaling to hundred million to a billion in ARR, and that involves different skill sets. And you bring in the superpowers when you need them. And I think that that's kind of that's the highlight of the overall picture. What's a recommendation you would give to a founder when they got to get to the next level? They bring in that salesperson with the knowledge to, which would be you, to take it another 20%. You're talking about the infrastructure and the process. 
What are some of the first processes you would put in place from a founder-led company that needs to get it to that next level to get the sales force going? Well, I think first off, um, the 20% is an example of, you know, being able to do what you're doing better. But I think ultimately any sales leader needs to grow it as fast as possible. Yeah. Um, look, I, I, I think just the, the number one piece of advice here, and just to make it simple, is to make sure you can hire a team that you can trust that is very extremely valuable and can do what you're doing, but better, right? You're going to get a VP of marketing early. You might hire your VP of marketing before your VP of sales, right? Like you need to have leads. You need to have people to talk to. You need to have a story about your business. You're going to hire a VPS. You're going to hire a VP of CX. You're going to hire a VP of tech. You're going to have like, you're going to hire a lot of different people. Um, but the, the, the piece, the most important thing you can do is to build an absolutely stellar core team that you can trust to drive the ball home. That's the best piece of advice I can give any founder. Well, who is your core team? I'd also say is that recruiting is an ongoing endeavor. You should always be recruiting. Um, there are founders that I know that will talk to a candidate that they they love. They want to hire them tomorrow, um, but the timing's not right. That's okay. Because you can keep people like that in the fold. You can talk to them. They can advise you. You can be friends. When that timing presents itself, and maybe it never does, but when that timing presents itself, they are there. And you have somebody that you can bring in into the fold. Um, so even if you haven't even founded your company yet, and you're thinking about founding a company one day, you should know every interaction you have is a potential recruitment opportunity for your future. And that's an important thing to do. Then you mentioned tech stack. Okay, you got the recruiting going and then you need, oh man, I got all these software choices. I mean, you're SaaS yeah. or I'm sassholes. It's like, <laughs> first, <laughs> do you agree with me on this? I mean, technology is there to help you speed up a process. If you don't have a process in place on pen and paper, <laughs> what's what's a tech stack going to do to help you out? What are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah I, so... so Tech is kind of, it's it's interesting. Um, in terms of tech, look, you need to have a process. I think if you're just throwing tech at a, at a, at a problem, you're not exactly addressing the problem. You need to identify you the two problems. problems, right? Yeah, exactly. So the, the, the thing is, is that if there's probably technology out there measures breathing efficiency in some way, shape or form, right? Like there's technology for everything these days. And, and yeah. so my point being that, you know, you could buy, everything under the sun in terms of a tech stack and go bankrupt. Um, or you can buy the pieces and tools that are necessary for your business. And so uh, I think it's really to understand what is it that your process wants to be or is, um, where is the potential hurdles or holes and how can you fill those gaps by, um, you know, providing a solution. And that's kind of the way in which I approach it. I start with absolutely core essentials, you know, um, efficiency, data, metrics, and understanding, right, of product or, or of sales process. I start with those tools. And then I evolve based upon what I'm missing. Uh, we still have a, a gap here or, oh, we could be doing more with our prospects. Maybe we could be sending them things or, oh, we could be doing more with in, in with our messaging. Maybe we could be filming things like and you can you can evolve your tech stack as you go. But you have to start with a core. Like, what are your essentials that are going to get you to your your KPI to your bottom line? So, OK, Salesforce and you need something to put data into Salesforce. Do you agree with me? All data is 
horrible. It it sucks. Whatever. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you put in. You're just looking for the the less smelliest pile to uh, put in there. You, you I, got I any recommendations, it. or you got too many uh, clients out there? Well, one of the one of the things that I will say is that Saster is uh, we, we are um, vendor agnostic. So I yeah. will start. With that. <laughs> uh, but I but, tried. It, but you did. But but what I will say, right, is um, and I give a lot of the data companies a lot of crap for this. Like they, they know it like they're their reps. They're, it's not like it's not like I'm 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 I'm, you know, coming at them. I yeah, yeah, yeah. laugh with the reps because I'm like, you're all selling the exact same thing. Right. And it's like it's like it's like, no, but our data is better or our data is different or whatever. And, and look, I, I I I get it. But at the same time, like come on man like it's 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 the it's like my my friends in the sock 2 space right i asked someone the other day i said so how what's your differentiation they're like well we do compliance <laughs> great <laughs> but, but, <laughs> that can't be the only differentiator right? like like you it's not just me sock 2 is compliance you, you might need something different you know and and there, there's yeah I, there is there is an element of differentiation and model. That's where you know what I'm going back to is one being able to sell a tr tell a true story behind your value in the marketplace is something that everyone struggles with, and two being able to build that relationship because it really if there is no difference at the end of the day, you better have the team that it has the largest Rolodex in the world, right? That's just <laughs> if there's no real difference, you just better be able to upset everybody else, you know. Well, it's the nature of the beast. I mean, there's so much turnover. I mean, LinkedIn's having a hard time keeping up with, with everybody. But, you know, you bring up differentiation. I think some of the best training you can give reps out there is to have them call up the same type of company as yourself and try to ask what the differentiators are. And once you hear that they're saying the same thing you are, you might want to change your game. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually one of the beautiful things about conferences, right? Um, yeah. It's a really great way to overhear pitches that are happening uh, and get some competitive, some competitive, you know, background. But, you know, look, the, the biggest piece of competitive advantage you have is yourself. You are the competitive differentiator. It's not your product. And your product can have diff competitive differentiation. So all the CPOs and CTOs that are listening to this, I'm not bashing what you do. But what I am saying is that, the biggest differentiator you can have is your approach to the market. And yeah. it's because it's the easiest one to, to verbalize, right? Um, it's in, it's completely in your hands. Now, obviously that only goes to a certain extent and yes, sales leaders, I understand that your technology team hasn't changed your product in three years, no matter how many times you tell them what the way it has to go and all the other complaints that you have. And I understand that it's hard, but what I'm going to say, and I'm going to bring it back to is that if you listen, truly listen with a third party ear in a way to your gong recordings and listen to that chorus recording and you listen, you understand what's going on in the business, you will hear that all they're talking about is the product most likely 85% of the time and less about what actually is needed by your prospect and or your customer. Let's get back to your six cylinder engine, your sales team. If you got one, one of them not hitting it, I mean, you got one cylinder that's not firing or misfiring. Sure. What kind of communication uh, cycle do you use? One-on-ones? Is it every week, smaller team, you can spend more time with them? Yeah. You know, 
it, it's different for this team because I think one of the things when things aren't working, um, it's such a tight knit unit that uh, we already know. Right. And that's the thing, too, is on a small team. First off, the small team increases exposure. Right. There's no hiding on this team. Yeah. And and so there, there there would be no even point in, in trying to hide. You're either performing or you're not. And, and so I, what's nice about this team is that when things are challenging or things are going wrong, um, before I even can see it, there's a probably a, a Slack message or a text message that goes out to the entire group saying, hey, I'm having challenges here. And then on top of it, there's a whole group of people that go, I'll jump on the next one with you. I'll support you here. Try this email, whatever it is that they need help with. And we're all working together towards the goal. That's the beautiful thing about a, uh, about a small team. Do I still do one-on-ones? Absolutely. I do them every week. Um, and, and actually, believe it or not, in a smaller team environment, I think weekly one-on-ones are probably more important than with larger teams. I, th- I actually find bi-weekly to be more efficient um, because more time is pr- uh, has passed and, and I can have more impactful one-on-ones. So it, it's a little bit different. But I also will go a step further there. With a larger team, you need to increase the coachings. That's different from a one-on-one time. So your one-on-one time really needs to be about, it's like working with a business owner and hearing about their business and where you can help. Coaching is a daily activity that you should be doing with your team and helping encourage and foster the learning mechanisms to be successful. I used to do a 15-minute stand-up every single morning with my air call team. Uh, before we even got, we, everyone came in, we, the day started at, let's say, 8.30, 8.15. We were in the conference room sitting down and, and, and going through one topic and warming, getting warmed up. And so we did a warm-up every single day, and it was the routine. And there was, whether it be a learning or we'd share something, a challenge everyone was facing, or we do a call review, didn't matter. We always did a stand-up every single day for 15 minutes. And then every Friday, we did an hour as a team of a coaching. Um, and we'd usually do two call reviews. Someone would pick a really great call and someone would pick a call that just went horrendously wrong. And we'd review it as a team. Uh, I trained a, a formula I used to have and used to teach against for, for cold calling or for uh, discovery calls. And we would go and analyze how that call went according to the formula. Where did we go wrong? What? How could we do it better next time? Um, so anyway, that that's a little bit more about the regimen. So this so the setting, I mean, a smaller team, I mean, it could be a national account team. That's a smaller team, right? It's sure. you you have a national account team, then you have BDRs. What's what's the feedback? Because yeah, the, the, you know, the new kids, they will work their ass off, but they don't know a lot. And then you have the national account team that knows everything. Yeah. Right. And it, is it going to work on quality and efficiency? Yeah. What's the difference in, in communication styles as a leader? You got to deal with both. Yeah. Well, look, I, I think you just, again, we try to keep it simple. Everything comes back to revenue. Um, yeah. I think a lot of SDR teams and SaaS, when they're larger teams, you can focus on, you can focus on a lot of different pieces. You could focus broad, right? You could, you could focus more like on pipeline generation or meeting set, right? And that's fine. There, there's some very successful teams that focus on that. Um, and successful leaders that have very large teams that focus on that. But with a small team, and at least in the sales cycle we're in at Saster, uh, I think we just focus on revenue. Uh, you know, on a national accounts team, you're most likely working some very, very big accounts, very, very large, large, um, uh, you know, brands. You're going to focus on revenue, focus on the wins. That's that's where everyone needs to be focused on. Because larger the larger the account the larger the opportunity the more hands the more things the more thoughts the more touches it needs to get across the line um and i think one of the 
things I'd call out about this SDR team at Saster is that they're extremely dialed in to every single criteria necessary in order to get a deal across the line. They're almost dialed in more on some accounts, I think, than some of the AEs are in, in, some, in some extent. And I love that. I think that's the right thing, to be honest, because they need to be dialed into that way. Um, but on the flip side, like, you know, a larger team, um, maybe you have, um, it's not as key accounts. Maybe you have some more mid-market, more SMB, maybe even it's more enterprise. I don't know. But yeah. your, your, um, your, your, your deal cycles are, are shorter. I mean, maybe they're less dialed into that. Maybe they need to, you know, that at bats matter. And then, so that's where the communication changes to, Hey, I've opened this account. Um, I, here's everything I know about it. Um, take it from here, Johnny. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, yeah. Brian, I asked this of everybody on the show. You got any thoughts on pay at risk? I mean, <laughs> what what do you mean? Well, okay, uh, we're going to give you fifty five percent in salary, and the rest is going to be in bonus. Okay, <laughs> so at risk, you're forty five percent. You know, that's yeah. your bonus commission yeah. and whatnot. A lot of companies are talking about going to a, a flat salary based on market conditions. You know, what should a top AE make in this market? Uh, well, if they want to make more money, then they have to bring in more revenue, blah, blah, blah. You got any thoughts? You think that'll ever change? Well, I, I, I think that, um, and here's another punchy topic that I'll, yeah. someone's going to come after me one of these days, uh, yeah. with the pitchforks and, and torches. Um, the best salespeople I know would only work on a high commission basis. Okay. Let that sink in for a minute. I'm not talking about 50-50 splits. I'm talking like 25-75 splits where, you know, it's low, low guarantee dollars, but the upside is huge. Let me, let me just, if you really know your product, you know what you're doing, or you're good at sales, that's the best opportunity out there, right? Like there's nothing better because if you're good at what you do and you're confident that you're a number one performer, then you're going to play the upside game all day long, twice on Sunday. Okay. Now that that said, 50-50 splits are probably the most common, I think, structure I've seen of, of pay scales. Yeah. Uh, when you start seeing more guaranteed salaries and flat rate just pay, it removes the whole purpose of sales. What's the incentive to overachieve? What's the incentive to overperform and, and crush numbers? Um I, I personally think that 80% of salespeople are B players. They could absolutely be A players that they wanted to be. They choose to be P players. Okay. I think 10% are C players and either they just are that green and haven't been given enough upbringing yet, or they need to find a new career. And I think about 10% are A players. Okay. That's that. And then I'm talking about the global sales workforce and that's a broad paint struck, paint, paintbrush and stroke. Why I say that, though, is because it's really important in my brain, at least when I'm hiring, to identify that every single person I talk to, there's an 80% chance this person's a B player. Like, that's just how I how I try to frame it, because I'm trying to find the A players. That's the only thing I'm looking for. They, the push, they're the ones that move the needle. The pushback I get on that one is, based on what you said, is then, then pay them 100% commission. And if you pay them 100% commission, that means you have 0% control, because they're just going to go out there and do whatever they do need to do to... to to bring bring the money in, so well, I mean, it's but 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 then I mean, uh, my my answer to that is, what kind of quality control do you have over what you're doing in your team, right? Like, it, it, you know, look, 
shitty managers will point fingers and say, here's the reason why my team sucks. Okay. Here's the reason why woe is me. Here's the reason why things don't work. Here's the reason why 100% commission doesn't work. That's what a shitty manager does. Okay. Leaders say, here's every reason why this makes sense. And here's how I empower a team to be better. And here's how I help that person that isn't working out to find the next opportunity for themselves. Leaders lead. Managers will complain. Um, so it sounds like you're talking to a lot of managers. Uh, I, I would be re remiss if I didn't mention that, um, you know, Sasser Annual this year was our our largest event we've ever had. We were thrilled and and absolutely stoked to be able to work with the players that we did. And we thank all of those sponsors because it was just, they made an, an, just an incredible event, even more incredible. Um, but uh, next year is going to be even bigger, believe it or not. And it's also going to be um, right back at the same spot. Uh, and before it, we're going to be at London for Sastra Europa in June. So, um, you know, if if uh, if you're looking to be in a in a spot where the limelight's on top SaaS companies and top SaaS founders, and you want to be access to that those individuals, um, we'd love to chat with you about Sastra Europa and Sastra Annual, uh, June and September, uh, respectively. And we'll have everything in the podcast notes, Brian. Brian and Sasser from Saster. <laughs> From a sasshole to a saster. Thank you for coming on, my friend. Nice talking shop with you. Pete, great chatting with you as well. And thanks for the time today. Absolutely. Our show is supported by listeners and viewers just like you. We'd like to thank Demand Farm Winalytics, Trent S. and Aaron J. for their continued support. DemandFarm.com unlock the account growth, smart software to bring account planning and relationship intelligence into your CRM, making key account management practice data-driven, predictable, and scalable. Go to DemandFarm.com, ask for Ironman. Hey, check out Brett Keltner's Revenue Acceleration Playbook Masterclass at Winalytics.com. In eight weeks, help your sales and go-to-market team start to build the mindset and skills needed to succeed in a new buyer environment. Sign your team up for the Masterclass today at Winalytics.com. If you'd like to help us out to improve the quality of our content, go to Patreon.com slash Sassholes.